Good morning. I'm Brenda Talent, the CEO of the Show Me Institute. Thank you for joining us to hear a briefing about the national debt. Uh, let me get some housekeeping out of the way before we begin. We're going to be taking questions during this briefing. To ask a question, look at the bottom of your Zoom screen and you can either raise your hand to speak or click on the Q&A box where you can type your question. Zach Lawhorn from the Show Me Opportunity will identify when we have a question and he'll call on you or read the questions submitted. We're gonna to try to get to as many of your questions as possible. We're very pleased and honored that uh, Brian Riedel is able to join us today. Brian's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He focuses on budget, tax, and economic policy. Previously, he worked for six years as the chief economist to Senator Rob Portman and as staff director of the Senate's Finance Subcommittee on Fiscal Responsibility and Economic Growth. From 2001 to 11, he served as the Heritage Foundation's lead research fellow on federal budget and spending policy. In that position, he helped lay the groundwork for Congress to cap soaring federal spending, rein in farm subsidies, and ban pork barrel earmarks. Brian's writing and research has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the LA Times, and National Review. He's a frequent guest on national news programs. Brian, thank you for joining us today, and I'm going to turn the program over to you now. Great. Thank you, uh, Brenda. Thank you, Zach. Uh, thank everyone at the Show Me Institute for inviting me today. Thank all of you for taking some time today to listen to a very depressing topic. Uh, hopefully, I can make it interesting for you, even if it's, it might be a little bit scary. Um, basically, we have three crises right now. We have a public health crisis, which created an economic crisis, which risks creating a fiscal crisis. And we need to solve the crises in that order. Public health, then the economy, then the fiscal crisis. But I will show that fixing the economy is not a blank check for unsustainable debt, and that the debt right now poses a real long-term threat that needs to be addressed as soon as the economy is strong enough to do so. Overall, let's take a look at the, the economy and the response first. Amazingly, the recession is forecast right now to reduce economic output by $17 trillion over the next decade. That's $17 trillion in GDP that's just evaporated. That will not be created over the next decade. And we just suffered the worst quarter ever measured. The GDP fell 9% last quarter. We're looking at about a 6% GDP drop for the year. The economy won't even return to 2019 levels until 2022. It's not even gonna fully recover until 2028. The job situation is brutal. We lost 17 million jobs. 5 million have been moved to part-time. The unemployment rate spiked from 3.5% to 14%. Uh, it's since thankfully come down to about 8%. Certain industries have been hit hard. Leisure and hospitality face a 29% jobless rate. Clothing stores face a 40% jobless rate. These are really numbers we haven't seen since the Great Depression. Uh, and I know a lot of people uh, personally that are listening to me right now, are, are they, they feel the suffering firsthand. Washington's response has been pretty large thus far. In fact, much larger than other countries. Congress thus far has approved $3.7 trillion in assistance uh, for, for businesses and individuals. And President Trump added about $300 billion more by executive order. So that's about $4 trillion that Washington has pushed into keeping the economy afloat. Now, I want to make a distinction between two kinds of assistance. There is Keynesian stimulus versus social insurance. Now, what I'm going to argue is that the Keynesian demand stuff doesn't really work very well. When you have the, the rebates and the policies meant to put money in people's pocket, which is kind of what a lot of people on the left are pushing right now, when you're trying to increase demand and consumption, that doesn't work as well because Keynesian stimulus doesn't really apply when people are stuck home with no place to spend the money and getting people to spend money generally has a horrible track record. The better response and the cheaper response is social insurance. 
The idea of social insurance is that right now Washington should just be focusing on keeping fragile families and businesses afloat. Keep families in their homes, keep families able to pay their bill, keep businesses from going bankrupt so that when the economy fully reopens, people have jobs to come back to. So you don't turn a short recession into a longer recession. That's a much cheaper approach. If you can do that, you can keep disposable income rising and the economy doing well. So I think that that's right now the best approach for Washington is target aid to vulnerable business and families, skip the universal programs, skip the $3.4 trillion Keynesian bazooka the Democrats have, have proposed. And you can kind of look at the conservative approach now of spending maybe $500 billion to a trillion dollars on a scaled down unemployment, keeping businesses afloat with the Paycheck Protection Program and targeted state aid. That's a one way to thread the needle where you can minimize the recession, prevent bankruptcies, but again, not shooting the $3 trillion Keynesian bazooka. That doesn't even really make sense when people don't have places to spend the money anyway or stimulate demand. The, one of the reasons we don't wanna spend the $3 trillion Keynesian bazooka too, is because the budget outlook is really bad. Um, we simply aren't in a position where we can just shovel extra trillion dollars out the door because the debt situation has to be paid attention to. And that's what I'll focus on for the rest of my, my, my remarks before we open it up for questions. Before the pandemic, the budget situation was already a mess. We were gradually heading towards trillion dollar deficits this year and $2 trillion deficits by the end of the decade. That's before the pandemic. But instead now, we are facing a $3.3 trillion deficit this year. We've never even had a $2 trillion deficit in American history. We're looking at $3.3 trillion this year. Never been seen. In fact, this year, half of every dollar government spends will be funded by borrowing. 50% of the budget is borrowed. Washington has spent so much money this year that it totals $50,000 per household. Let me repeat that. Federal spending this year comes to $50,000 per household. Never happened in American history. So we face a really serious debt issue moving forward. Over the next decade, the national debt is gonna go from 17 trillion to $35 trillion. Think about that, we're gonna double the national debt. I remember back when it was five or $6 trillion um, before the Great Recession, it's bumped up to 17, we're heading to 35. In fact, the debt right now, if you measure as a percent of the economy, just like a household measures their debt as a percentage of their budget, we're gonna pass 100% of GDP this year, which means the debt will be the size of the entire economy. By the end of the decade, we're heading towards about 114% of GDP, which would exceed even the peak of World War II. At the peak of World War II, we were at 106%. We're gonna be at 114% at the end of the decade. And that's the rosy scenario that assumes the economy recovers. There's no more stimulus, no more tax cuts, no more spending. Again, in the short term, yes, some of this spending is justified. The targeted spending is important in order to keep the economy afloat because a recession will cost even more money uh, as it continues than stimulus. But we have to be careful not to do the Keynesian demand management that's $3 trillion. There's three dangers of this debt <clears throat> if we go too far. The first if we, is that the debt is going to get much bigger and not just because of coronavirus. I mentioned before that we're about to exceed the 106% of GDP that was during the peak of World War II. Well, one difference is World War II ended, thankfully, and the debt came back down. However, we are gonna have the debt continue growing forever right now, mainly due to 74 million baby boomers retiring into Social Security and Medicare. That is the main driver of the debt. In fact, Every year, Social Security and Medicare do not collect enough in payroll taxes and premiums to pay full benefits. 
So every year, we have to put general revenues into Social Security and Medicare to make all the payments. The cost of those annual payments is going to rise from $500 billion this year to just under $2 trillion a decade from now. That is the main reason the deficit is going to, is going to rise back up over $2 trillion even after the pandemic ends because these general revenue transfers into Social Security and Medicare are gonna go from 500 billion to 2 trillion a year. Over the decade, $12 trillion in general revenues will be needed to make all Social Security and Medicare payments. The 30 year numbers are actually worse. Over the next 30 years, Social Security and Medicare face a $63 trillion cash shortfall according to the Congressional Budget Office. You heard that right, a $63 trillion cash shortfall, which when borrowed is gonna cost an additional $40 trillion in interest payments. It's $103 trillion uh, is gonna be the, the outside cost of Social Security and Medicare beyond what they collect in payroll taxes and premium. That 103 trillion accounts for virtually the entire rise in the national debt over the next 30 years. The result, a debt heading towards 200% of GDP, twice as big as the economy, within three decades, in this scenario of peace and prosperity, no pandemics, no new wars, no new spending, no new tax cuts. That's the rosy scenario. We have to be careful in part because who's going to lend us this money? When we talk about the debt, a lot of people say, well, there's global demand for dollars. China, Japan, they're going to be happy to lend us money because <clears throat> the dollar is the world's reserve currency. Everybody wants dollars. Here's a little interesting fact. Over the last decade, China and Japan's borrowing haven't increased at all. They have held $2.2 trillion of our debt for a decade combined, $2.2 trillion. So as the debt heads to $100 trillion over the next three decades, this is well beyond what we can expect China and Japan to bail us out. Even if they things, that would still be only $4 trillion out of $100 trillion. So that means that this $100 trillion debt is going to have to be overwhelmingly financed by Americans. How is that going to happen? Well, here's an interesting factoid. This past year, we borrowed $3.3 trillion. That's this year's deficit. 60% of it was funded by the Federal Reserve. We are basically funding 60% of all the borrowing this year with the printing press. The other 40% of the borrowing came from domestic savings because during the pandemic, <clears throat> the US savings rate quadrupled from 8% to 32%. So you had a lot of savings and the Federal Reserve monetizing 60% of it. Is that really sustainable though? Moving forward, we're looking at about $18 trillion in the next decade. Is the Fed gonna keep monetizing that 18 trillion? That's not really in their current plans. That leaves domestic savings to fund most of this, even as savings rates fall back to normal levels. That also means that even if they can fund it, it's going to come out of money that would have gone usually to business investment, which would have helped productivity and growth. We're going to be diverting a lot of money from the productive sectors of the economy in order to feed the government beast. This looks doable at the, uh, at the outset because interest rates have been low. But will they always be low? And that's, we have to take a look at our interest rates really going to be able to stay low to afford this. Now, right now, CBO says yes. Even as the projected debt has soared, CBO now says that over the next decade, the average interest rate paid by the government will only be about 1.5%. Looks affordable. This is miles lower than normal. In the 1990s, the, average, the, the government paid 7%. In the 2000s, the government paid 5%. In the 2010s, they paid about 2.5%. Now, CBO is assuming that interest rates are going to stay at 1.5%. Here's where it gets a little scary. For all of this debt to be affordable, interest rates really have to stay below 2.5% to 
forever. And it's important to note, government isn't locking in these low interest rates like a family with a mortgage. Most of the government's debt is short term. It has to be rolled over, which means if interest rates rise, the government's interest payments rise pretty quickly too. It's kind of like a family borrowing a lot of money and then taking out a variable rate mortgage. You gotta be careful. If interest rates rise a decade from now, every point they go up will cost $330 billion a year in interest payments. Let me repeat that. Every point rates rise will cost $330 billion to the federal budget. That's $3,000 per household in new taxes. Every time points, the interest rate rises one point. Over 30 years, 11 trillion is the cost of every interest rate point increase. What that means is that over 30 years, if interest rates rise one point, that'll cost twice as much as the tax cuts. If interest rates rise two points, that'll cost as much as the entire social security shortfall. If interest rates rise three points, add a trillion dollars to the budget deficit, all in interest costs. We are essentially gambling our fiscal future on the hope that we can build the largest debt in the world without triggering rising interest rates. Unfortunately, what most economists will tell you is that government borrowing by itself raises interest rates and that the level of borrowing forecast over the next couple decades should raise rates about three points. That's just standard economic theory. Now, perhaps we're right. Perhaps interest rates will stay at one, 2% forever. In that case, the debt will be, that will be somewhat affordable. If not, it could be catastrophic. So in that context, I would say that proposals we're seeing now to add trillions of dollars in additional spending, especially that that's not even really tied to fixing the economy, is especially irresponsible. It's pouring gasoline on the fire. So what should we do? I'd say three steps. First, we still need to help relieve the recession without spending a dollar more than is necessary. We need to focus on social insurance, keeping families whole, keeping businesses whole, without trying to do the Keynesian bazooka where we just throw trillions of dollars around and hope that it increases demand. That usually doesn't work. We also need to avoid big, expensive, permanent initiatives not the $11 trillion proposed by, <clears throat> by Vice President Biden, not the $40 trillion proposed by other candidates who are running for president. Even if President Trump gets reelected, you know, there's, we're gonna have to become a lot more responsible than we've been in the past. And that's why the third point then is, we need to begin preparing to address long-term spending trends as soon as the economy is strong enough to handle it. Even if we don't wanna implement consolidations now, we can at least start planning for it so that we can implement it as soon as the economy is strong enough to handle it. That mostly means addressing social security and healthcare, which as I said before, are the main driver of long-term deficits. And yes, if you want a bipartisan deal, it probably means agreeing to revenue increases as well. There's just no other way to do this politically. In Ernest Hemingway's novel, The Sun Also Rises, there's a character named Mike and is at, who's asked, how did you go bankrupt? Two ways, he answers, gradually and then suddenly. The thing about a fiscal crisis is that by the time you see it, it's too late. It's a lot better to phase in smart reforms now rather than wait until a fiscal crisis and impose drastic reforms later. Do we really want to gamble our entire future on interest rates never rising? We'll see. Thank you. I'm happy to take questions, comments, insults. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks, Brian. Uh, so our first question is, what will happen if the country tries to inflate our way out of the debt burden? What are some of the real world consequences that, could, uh, that we could see? Well, that's kind of, that's a great question. It's kind of what, what the Federal Reserve has done this year. The Federal Reserve, like I said, has monetized or basically used the printing press to fund 60% of the new borrowing. 
At this point, it has not been inflationary, but that's in part because the economy is pretty weak. We, are, we were able to do modest printing press, basically, um, during the last recession as well. The Federal Reserve increased its balance sheet. If the Federal Reserve really aggressively tries to monetize on a level we haven't seen before, what happens is you, you will likely get inflation. And in fact, we're seeing right now that the money supply is increasing drastically. Uh, M2, I believe, is up about 10%, uh, which is one of the measures of the money supply. If this does increase inflation, then what happens is interest rates end up rising accordingly uh, because investors uh, want their money protected from inflation. So if, so if inflation rises 5%, you can expect interest rates to rise 5% in order to protect investors, in which case you're not really protecting the federal government. Yes, you've inflated the debt down, you've inflated much of the debt away, but any future borrowing is now going to be at a six, seven, eight percent rate instead of a three percent rate. And when you have that hundred trillion dollars for Social Security you're facing, you know it's it's great that you inflated away a bunch of the twenty-seven trillion dollar current debt, but now you're just paying double or triple the interest rates on that next hundred hundred trillion dollars you're borrowing. It really doesn't get you out of this mess. So I think the Federal Reserve, I think, will probably be more accommodationist moving forward. They're going to try to keep rates low. They're going to try. They might do a little more monetization here and there, but they have to be careful because, again, if they go too far, they trigger inflation, interest rates go up. We're right back in the same mess. Great. Uh, what are your thoughts on modern monetary theory, which seems to minimize the negative consequences of long-term deficit spending? MMT, modern monetary theory, I think, is real, it's, real, it's very popular these days on the internet. It's not particularly popular with economists. Um, there's a couple very aggressive economists on social media and elsewhere who've really pushed this. A lot of them are based at either Stony Brook or, or UMKC. Uh, the tenet of modern monetary theory is that basically the government can fund trillions with the printing press and it won't be inflationary we, in fact, we don't even need taxes. We can, we can spend everything. We can print the money. I think economic history shows that this is simply not true at all. I mean, MMT, MMT people are very quick to point out that the government has the power to print its own money. That is true. The government does have the power to print its own money. That doesn't mean there's no consequences. And the idea that we can triple or quadruple the money supply without any inflation is simply not backed up by economic theory or by economic history with what we've seen in other countries as well. Now, literal MMT is a lot more moderate than internet MMT. Internet MMT is that generally says inflation doesn't exist no matter how much money you print. But if you actually read the MMT theorists, they will admit that at a certain point you get inflation. And their answer to that then is just raise taxes through the roof in order to, to, to pull down inflation. Well, in that case, you, you spending still isn't a free lunch either. You're just paying for it with, with huge taxes anyway. So I think in a literal MMT is a little more moderate, but, but it's more just you result, it just brings you huge taxes and huge spending. Internet MMT, is the, the argument that just inflation is a figment of our imagination. I think you will not find 99% of economists taking that seriously. With the 15-year Treasury yield under 1% and 30-year Treasuries under 1.5%, why is the market not reacting to the debt crisis you're describing? Right now, I think the market is, well, two reasons. Right now, I think the market is looking short-term. And they, they see a weak economy right now, and they're lowering interest rates right now because there's a glut of savings. Uh, again, the savings rate has gone from 8% to 32% during the recession. So in the short term, you have supply and demand. Um, you have a glut of savings out there. Businesses don't want to invest. People don't, banks don't know what to do with the money they have. It has to find somewhere. The markets are clearing at, at, at that rate. That is a short-term effect. Long term, though, I think you're going to see rates rise uh, because 
the savings rates will drop back 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 to the eight percent rate. In fact, savings rates could start dropping pretty drastically if families aren't getting enough aid from Washington during the recession. You actually are going to see families stretched pretty thin. You're just you're going to have less savings available to flood the market. The other reason is when I talk to uh, people on who work on Wall Street and people who work in banking about long-term interest rates, they are working under the assumption that there will eventually be a budget deal. They are working under the assumption that the $100 trillion national debt that the CBO forecasts in 30 years won't happen because at some point in the next five to seven years, the president and Congress will fix it. I hope they're right. But it's important to note that if the interest rates are, are, are on that assumption, you actually still have to get the deal. <laughs> you can't take the view of, we don't need a budget deal because interest rates are low because they already assume the existence of a budget deal. At certain point, if Wall Street, if the debt starts to rise and Wall Street starts to believe that maybe there won't be a budget deal and maybe these long-term numbers are pretty bad, then you will start to see the 30-year rate rise. You'll see short-term rates rise. That's when you start to get a little bit of a panic. In personal finance, you hear about good debt and bad debt. Does that idea apply to the national debt? Theoretically, yes. Um, there is good, good debt is debt that you can borrow at a long-term affordable interest rate that produces new wealth in order to help pay the interest. If we were borrowing for major investments that will grow the economy, I would call that good debt. Um, especially if, those, if, if the economic growth allows you to pay reasonable interest rates. I think, I think there, there is a strong case for borrowing for certain pro-growth investments. You could argue in education, infrastructure, scientific research, if you can show that these programs are effective, then that can be good debt. The danger right now, long-term, is we're mostly gonna be borrowing for Social Security and Medicare. Now, we like Social Security and Medicare, we like seniors, we want seniors to, to you know, be able to afford medical care and, and their income. But in terms of economic growth, you're not, you're not creating new wealth with, with which to pay the debt. There's really not much of an argument that that is something to go into debt for. Generally, that's the kind of spending you, that should be paid for with payroll taxes and premiums, because that's not really an investment in future growth. It's more uh, humanitarian aid. <laughs> awkward way of putting it, but it's, it's the, the point of it is to, is to help people rather than invest in, in our kids and future growth. So I would say that, yes, there is a case for borrowing for good, for pro-growth investments, but if the idea is simple redistribution in order to alleviate suffering, I don't, under, I, I don't see a case for why that would need to be borrowed rather than paid for as, as we go. You mentioned your three-step plan for reform. Uh, do you feel that that's currently politically feasible? Um, in our dysfunctional Congress, not much is feasible right now. Uh, the, one of the problems right now is nobody cares about the deficit anymore. Republicans lost most of their deficit credibility with the 2017 tax cuts. Now, I think the 2017 tax cuts had a lot of very important positive things in it. I like the corporate... Uh, rate reduction. There was a lot of good ideas in the 2017 tax cuts. However, by not paying for it, Republicans essentially lost their credibility and limited any chance of a bipartisan deal. Democrats took the tax cuts, which were about $2 trillion, as a blank check to go propose $40 trillion in spending. So essentially, it created an arms race where nobody cares about deficits right now even setting aside the recession. Now, there is a little bit of an underground push. Um, there is something called the Trust Act that uh, Mitt Romney drafted in the Senate, and there's some House members supporting this, that would try to bring the Social Security, Medicare, and other trust funds into solvency. And the Trust Act was signed by 40 House members recently, 20 Democrats, 20 Republicans. 
So I think right now there's a little bit of a debt backlash bubbling up under the surface. And who knows, we might see another Tea Party after we have all this recession in debt, kind of like the last one. But politically right now, people don't seem to care because they're not feeling the effects of it. The danger again, though, is once you start to feel the effects of it, once you have the slower growth and the higher interest rates, it's so much harder to fix. You really want to tackle this before you get there. Um, but I'm holding out hope. I, I meet with senators and, and House members regularly on these issues. They personally see it, but they also think politically it's just too hard of a lift right now, uh, even setting aside the recession. So how should the average person think about deficits? I mean, you mentioned that we're heading for, for record deficits when gigantic numbers like that are thrown around. Um, I mean, how much should that matter to the average person when they hear $2.6 trillion in deficits? Yeah, I, I think the way it matters to you personally, well, first, let me just say, you should, I think, I would, I would, for those of you who plan long-term finances and plan your projections into the future, I would plan on higher taxes. I think realistically, the spending trends are completely incompatible with our current, current tax commitments. I would plan for higher taxes in the future. I think if you are heading towards retirement, I would at least be ready for the possibility that your Medicare premiums may be higher than they are right now. The social security eligibility age might be higher. Benefits may be trimmed a little bit. I, I would adjust your expectations of the future. Um, <clears throat> now that doesn't mean we're gonna get rid of social, you know, so when people say social security won't be here, social security will be here. Um, it just may not be as generous and the eligibility age may be a little higher. Medicare will be here. The premiums might be higher. In the meantime, I think setting aside your future tax and, uh, and benefit assumptions, you should also be ready for some sluggish economic growth over the next 10 years. Um, you know, you have to be ready for the possibility that interest rates might rise. You know, for, so for those who are looking at buying a home, buying a car, business investment, we might be heading into an area where we have a little slower growth and some higher interest rates, and, and we should all be ready for that. So how should all of this, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but how should all of this impact the conversations that are being had right now about another round of uh, government stimulus? It's a great question. Um, I think, again, we should spend what it takes to keep the economy afloat and not a penny more. If we pulled back all of the aid right now and the recession got deeper, well, that might actually cost us even more than the stimulus. I mean, the first thing we have to do is get out of the recession, get some growth, get people back to work and create jobs because you cannot solve a debt crisis during a recession. <laughs> the recession is costing you money. So the first thing to do is get out of the recession. However, we have to, again, be careful. I think you want to give, you want to help the unemployed, you want to give the vulnerable money so that they're not having their homes foreclosed on, they're not losing their homes, they're not going bankrupt. Because again, that creates even bigger economic problems. If, if, if we have a wave of foreclosures, that's going to ripple into the banking industry. And then you have a 2008 style problem. Keep people in their homes to avoid a bank panic. And to help the damn families. On the business side, keep the businesses afloat, assure loans like the PPP program, the Paycheck Protection Program, to keep businesses afloat so that when the economy reopens, people have jobs to go back to. We can do that for $500 billion. We don't have to do $3 trillion like the Democrats are proposing, we can keep businesses and individuals afloat for about 500 billion. That's a lot less of addition to the national debt than what, what, what they're talking about. I mean, to, to give a taste on what the, what the, Democrat, the House passed bill does, states are looking at shortfalls of about 100, 150 billion dollars this year, according to Moody's. The House passed bill would give them $1 trillion. There's just no justification for a trillion dollar assistance program for states that need 150 billion. 
Um, additionally, the House passed bill removes the cap on the state and local tax deduction. So basically, that is a tax cut of which 96% would go to the top quintile and more than half would go to the top 1%, mostly in coastal blue states. So the House passed bill is giving a huge tax break to the wealthiest families in New York and California and giving states and local governments multitudes more than they've even asked for. I mean, that's just, when you're, again, when you're facing the debt numbers, that, that's just ridiculous. I mean, the three, the $3 trillion in the House passed bill, the $3.4 trillion, let's assume a one, or let's assume it, I mean, you're basically gonna pay $100 billion on that alone every year in interest permanently. You're gonna have 100 annual interest costs just from that bill. And you're gonna pay that interest costs every year in the budget forever. Think what you could do with $100 billion a year in the federal budget. But instead, that would just be the interest cost of a $3.4 trillion spending bill. I just think it's, it's, it's unnecessary and it takes away resources from things we need better. As we head into the election, are there anything or things that make you more optimistic or pessimistic um, that there'll be meaningful reform and change in this area? Um, I'm a little pessimistic. Uh, President Trump put out his 50 goals for a second term. Deficit reduction was not one of them. Didn't even make the 50. Uh, President Trump has, has overseen about $6 trillion in added debt over his, his presidency. Hasn't really given much of an indication that he's going to address any of this. On the Democratic side, I guess we can say, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders wasn't nominated. Uh, he, he had proposed $97 trillion in new spending over the decade. <laughs> Let me repeat that, $97 trillion. The, the thing is, you know, even Joe Biden, who is a moderate by today's standards, has proposed $11 trillion in new spending. By contrast, the last three Democratic nominees, John Kerry, Barack Obama, and Hillary Clinton, each proposed $1 or $2 trillion over the decade in new spending. Well, Biden's proposed $11 trillion. So even if he's a moderate by today's standards, it's still the most left-wing presidential nominee in terms of budget since LBJ. My worry is, as after we get it after the election, we're still going to have a Republican Party that's pretty indifferent to deficits and a Democratic Party that's happy to spend. I'm still kind of hoping on that underground movement in Congress. These senators and House members I talk to who quietly say this is unsustainable, the ones who sign on to the Trust Act. But ultimately, they're not going to act on this stuff until they hear from their constituents. And the constituents right now are obviously concerned more with the deficit, with the recession and the pandemic, which is understandable. But hopefully, once the economy gets better and it's strong enough to handle some deficit reduction, it would be really great if, if more voters actually went to Congress and said, no, I actually don't want free handouts. <laughs> I, wanna, I wanna leave this country in, 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 in safe financial hands and not having a debt crisis. So why can't we just tax the rich to pay down the debt? Well, we can a little bit. Uh, I have an article in National Review last week uh, where I, I walk through what can and can't be accomplished by taxing the rich. There is, a, there is an argument that, that the rich could pay more than they are paying today. The challenge is that the amount of revenue you can make from taxing the rich is nothing compared to the, the problems we face. Um, First, you know, Bernie Sanders talks a lot about we're going to tax the billionaires. We're going to tax the billionaires. We're going to pay for his $90 trillion by taxing the billionaires. America has 800 billionaires. Their combined net worth is $3.4 trillion. If you confiscated every penny 
of the billionaires, you would pay off about 20% of the deficit over the next decade. That's it. Every penny the billionaires have would pay off 20% of the deficit. Wouldn't finance any of their new spending. It would finance 20% of the deficit. And that's actually like taking every penny they have and keeping in mind that most of the billionaire money is actually in the stock market. So you're, you're wiping out your 401k. Let's say, but let's keep this up. Let's say we took, let's say we had a hundred percent tax rate over a million dollars, hundred percent. And let's say theoretically everyone kept working at a hundred percent tax rate over a million dollars. You would raise 11 trillion over the decade. Still not even enough to balance the budget. And that's if everybody works. Overall, if you take a look at the plans by a lot of prominent uh, advocates of higher taxes, the wealth tax, 70% income tax rates, um, huge corporate tax rates. You could soak the rich on a level unseen elsewhere in the world, and you'd raise about $6 trillion over the decade. Now, the baseline deficit is about $16 trillion. Again, I just said Biden promised $11 trillion. Even the highest taxes, and keep in mind, they really wouldn't even raise the $6 trillion because economic people, a lot of the money would leave. So you, you can raise taxes on the rich, but the idea that you're actually going to make a big dent in the deficit numbers, the, the, the data just doesn't show it. And that's why if you go to Europe, they don't finance socialism with 70% tax rates on the rich. They finance socialism with 20 or 25% value added taxes, which are essentially national sales taxes and with really high payroll taxes. In Europe, the middle class pays the tab because even if you liquidated the, the wealth of the rich, there's just not enough money to pay for it. So I'm not saying we can't advocate any higher taxes on the rich, but I'm saying realistically, the bulk of the money is gonna come from the middle class because that's where most of the money is. So you've mentioned, mentioned Social Security and Medicare a couple of times. Uh, are there any other programs or sectors that you think would be targeted for reduction to pay down the debt? Should be or would be? Uh, let's go with should be. Should be. Ultimately, I think everything has to be on the table. Uh, taxes have to be on the table. Defense spending has to be on the table. Social Security and Medicare have to be on the table. Everything has to be on the table. However, there are parts of the budget that you're gonna get a lot more money out of than other parts. Let's take a look at defense. The defense budget was 50% of the budget in the 60s, 30% of the budget in the 80s. It's now just 15% of the budget. In fact, the defense budget is not much higher than, than it was right before 9-11 as a percent of GDP which was our post-World War II trough. Right now we're spending about 3% of GDP on defense. NATO spends about 2%. We can cut defense, we're not gonna get that much out of it. It's already been drastically reduced to 15% of the budget, but it should be on the table. Non-defense discretionary spending, which is stuff like highways, R&D, housing, foreign aid, K through 12 education, is also about 15% of the budget and it has been squeezed as well. You're not gonna get very much out of it. It's a small and shrinking part of the budget. Anti-poverty spending is about 20% of the budget. It's been level over time. It's really hard to squeeze money out of the anti-poverty budget without causing a lot of harm. Um, yeah, I think you can, you, can you can do tweaks here and there in order to get fix over payments, but let's face it, we're not, gonna, we're not gonna wipe out the Medicaid program. We're not gonna wipe out the SNAP program. Ultimately, that leaves Social Security and Medicare. Um, that is the biggest part of the budget. It is growing at a huge rate. Um, it's going to overwhelm the budget. And Every other part of the budget is so much smaller than Social Security and Medicare, and those programs are growing so fast that this isn't a matter of ideology, it's just a matter of arithmetic. If these programs 
are responsible for about 80 to 90% of all budget growth over the next decade outside of the pandemic, then that's where you have to go. You can't, you're not going to zero defense. You're not going to zero anti-poverty. You're not going to zero non-defense discretionary spending. If 80 to 90% of the growth is social security and Medicare, that's where you have to go because that's where the money is. So I think, I think uh, it, politicians don't want to tell you that because they're in the business of getting reelected. But again, this is just math. Sure. So for some perspective, earlier you mentioned Japan. Are there any other countries that the U.S. is kind of um, in this group with? Are there, I mean, is, are, we, are we headed towards Greece? Are we headed towards, you know, it, uh, who are our counterparts? Uh, in this we have no counterpart <laughs> because we don't have the biggest debt in the world. Uh, Japan is at 200% of GDP, although they're able to finance it much easier because Japan has a huge savings rate. Greece was at about 170% of GDP. Other countries in Europe are, are about 100%, but it's, it's, it's more dangerous for us. And the reason is, a, our debt numbers over the next 30 years are projected to grow a lot more than Western Europe, than Greece, than Japan. The other reason it's more dangerous for us is I understand we're the world's reserve currency, but our debt is so big that we can't be bailed out by other countries. Uh, when Greece hit 175% of GDP, it was really scary for Greece. Their debt was 175% of GDP, but you know what? it was $350 billion. The rest of the world could bail Greece out without batting an eyelash, 350 billion. Other countries could easily come in and help. When our debt is, a, you know, is heading towards 150 or 200% of GDP, at that point, it's gonna be 80 or $100 trillion. No other country can help is gonna bail us out of that. It's just, the U.S. economy is so big and our debt is such a huge, is so huge in relation to the world economy that we can't depend on China or Japan or the U.K. or Western Europe. No one's going to bail us out like, like other countries can bail Greece out. So not only do we have a debt that's rising faster than other countries, but you could argue that on the, while we have the positive of being the world's reserve currency, we have the negative of being the one country the rest of the world can't bail out because 100% of our GDP is enormous, much bigger than say 170% of the Greece GDP. All right, for the final question, for people who want to um, keep track of the national debt deficits, there's a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of, it gets a lot of news coverage. What are some of the places, sources that people should be paying attention to? Um, that they can they can get reliable information from. There are two. Well, other, other than the Manhattan Institute, <laughs> you can always. I, I put up chart books all the time on the Manhattan Institute page. I my my Twitter account. <clears throat> by the way, you can follow me on Twitter, Brian underscore Riedel, B R I A N underscore R I E D L. Setting setting the self promotion aside, the Congressional Budget Office um, put up put put out. 30 year, a 10 year baseline last week, CBO is great. In about a week and a half, they're gonna be putting out the new 30 year baseline, uh, which will make you wanna drink heavily. But when, when they show how bad the 30 year numbers are. Another place to go to, if you really wanna impress your friends with budget data, and you know you do, is the OMB historical tables. This is put out by the Office of Management and Budget, it's not, but it's nonpartisan. Um, if you just Google OMB historical tables, you have, you have a tab of a, a page of about a hundred Excel tables of basically the history of budgeting up to the current year. You can see what's growing, what's shrinking, what's the biggest parts of the budget. It's really important to look at CBO and OMB because there's so much misinformation. I mean, 90% of what I read on the internet about taxes and spending is not only wrong, but it's so wrong that it could be disproven in 30 seconds of a CBO or OMB search. So I would go to the Congressional Budget Office. I would Google the OMB historical tables. And you're always free to check me out on the Manhattan Institute or on Twitter because I'm constantly posting the charts and uh, uh, learning all sorts of new swear words from angry people on Twitter. 
Great. All right. Well, thank you all uh, for your questions. Sorry if we didn't have time to uh, to get to yours, but uh, that was great, Brian. And I'll turn it back over to Brenda. Oh, well, thank you, Zach, and thank you, Brian. Actually, um, I don't want to end this on a down note, but I, I feel like this is a question we've got to ask because we've been talking about what happens if we hit the fiscal crisis. Brian, can you just give us, and again, I don't want to end on a down note, but I think we need to make this more concrete. What does it look like if we have a fiscal crisis as a nation? A fiscal crisis essentially happens when Wall Street determines that the debt is too big and that the U.S. is going to have trouble paying it back, and they demand higher interest rates in order to compensate for that risk of not being paid back. When that happens, and Washington cannot cut tax, cannot raise taxes or cut spending enough to pay it back, then you start to see the printing press, you start to see inflation in order to pay it back. That's what a fiscal crisis looks like. It looks like huge inflation, big tax hikes, drastic spending cuts, including on vulnerable populations, and just overall instability. Um, I'm not saying it's, it's going to look like fiscal, fiscal crises elsewhere. It may not necessarily look like the Weimar Republic, but again, it's where you start to see your savings really start to lose value because the inflation rate can go from 2% to 10% to 12% to 14%, which if you lived through the 1970s is not unprecedented, I'm telling you. Um, you can see interest rates suddenly going towards 20%. People start to lose their homes if you have an adjustable rate mortgage. People are losing money at the same time their government benefits are going down and their taxes are going up. That's what it looks like, and, and it, it's scary. Uh, I, 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 I don't want to end on a down note, so here's a positive note. Herbert Stein said, an unsustainable trend by definition cannot continue. At some point, we have to address this. I, my hope is we're going to get this addressed before we have a debt crisis, because I think at some point they will wise up. The solutions will be ugly, but if I had to bet, I would bet that we do not have a debt crisis. Unfortunately, we might end up with just really high taxes, though. Well, Brian, thank you for your insight, and I want to thank everyone for joining us today. You can find Brian's articles on his page at the Manhattan Institute. Uh, again, everyone, thank you, and stay safe.